0: Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're crossing over into the area of anthropology and talking about childhood and how it's conceived in societies across the globe. Anthropologist David Lancey addresses this issue in his book, The Anthropology of Childhood Cherubs, Chattel, Changelings, which is now in its second edition published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. David F. Lancy is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at Utah State University and author and editor of several books on childhood and culture, including Cross-Cultural Studies in Cognition and Mathematics, published in 1983, Playing on the Mother Ground, Cultural Routines for Children's Learning, published in 1996, Studying Children in Schools, published in 2001, and The Anthropology of Learning in Childhood, published in 2010. David, so glad to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Very happy to join you. So
0: I want to start with your most recent book, The Anthropology of Childhood, Cherubs, Chattel, Changelings. And I want to start with the title. What does
1: it mean? Well, the, the title has two parts, obviously. The first part is designed to convey the idea that this is Um, an anthropological study of childhood to distinguish it from any number of other studies or perspectives on childhood. So this is the first of its kind. Um, And if you ask the average anthropologist, they might about the anthropology of childhood, or at least before this book came out, they might've said what, because the anthropology of childhood is, is, has not been a prominent topic uh it now is uh, not entirely as a result of my efforts, uh but it was was a, a minor topic in anthropology and uh but I think I was able to demonstrate in the book to a wider audience, especially among anthropologists, that it was worth looking at what anthropologists had found out about children. The second part of the title is a uh, defines kind of the, the uh, signposts in this literature um, and that is that I, I wanted to get across the idea that different cultures view childhood in very very different ways or view children in very very different ways across cultures and in particular that our culture was a bit of an outlier that the, the many aspects of the way we raise children, the way we look at them um, their lives are really quite distinctive when compared to just about everybody else. And so cherubs are children, I, I consider those to be typical of the children in our society, which are um, really, really important. They are at the apex of, let's say, a hierarchy. Uh, we devote so much attention and money to them. Um, in the cultures, the anthropologist study, it's it's quite the reverse. Children aren't that very Very important. And one of the reasons they're not very important is because they're a burden. They don't do much. They don't make much of a contribution. They don't know very much. So I contrast our culture, which I call a neontocracy, with the rest of the world, which traditional societies, historical societies, which I call a gerontocracy, where the oldest people, even the ancestors, sit on top of this hierarchy, and children are pretty much at the bottom. Chattel. Um, one of the most common ways to view children is as chattel. That is, as property, as future workers, as resources to be um, to be to be utilized as soon as as soon as they are able to make a contribution. Um, a, for example, adoption and the circulation of children in the past was extremely common. Um, and it was done as much as anything else because children were seen as labor, uh, household helpers or future helpers, and they were moved around among family members, grandparents, and so on, as needed. Then you have changelings. Changelings, um, is, a, is a term that describes, um, The view of children, the view of infants in particular, that they, they're very, people are very ambivalent about infants. Infants represent a great threat to their mothers and even to the community, to the family. I know that from our perspective, that sounds really, really strange, but when you consider, um, the very high child mortality rates, uh, when you consider the enormously high um, um fatality of mothers in childbirth that would have been typical until very recently um really uh you can begin to get into the idea that 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 infants are are really as much of a threat as anything else. they could be changelings, meaning that they are uh not as they appear that is they they're um they're not they're not uh pure innocent babies but they but they could have some malevolence and um, typically when an infant um cries a great deal or looks strange or behaves in any sort of strange manner or is very demanding um they begin to think oh this is not a human being. This is this is some you know the gremlins have placed their offspring, they've switched like a cuckoo Switched the baby, babies, and you've ended up with a, with a child that is not really yours. And so you might put that child in a, in a situation where they will be, in effect, traded back to you get your, your, uh, your own child. But of course, what happens in most cases, changelings are placed in a situation which they cannot survive from. They're placed out in the wilderness overnight or something like that. So that's the title in too many words probably. <laughs> that's what the that's what the title represents.
0: Well, and that's a great introduction to the ideas that you're that you cover in the book. But of course, you you may not be surprised to hear me say this. Our listeners are I'm assuming predominantly of 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 the western world and many of them might be hearing this and one and and having negative reactions to some of the things that you said about how Children can be viewed as changelings or as chattel. So, what is it that you are trying to accomplish by sharing with the Western audience all these ideas and all these practices about around childhood from other cultures? Why do you think it's important for us to know how other cultures, other societies um, handle and think about children?
1: Well, you can come at that from a number of different angles. You can come at at it from a scientific theoretical angle or you can come at it from a pragmatic angle. So if we take it, if we start with a scientific perspective, the study of childhood, the study of child development of children is is pretty much owned by psychology, owned by developmental psychology. And when you look at, pick up a typical child development, child psychology textbook, There are assertions made from that research that are designed to speak to childhood universally. That is, the research has undertaken thousands of studies every week, dozens and dozens of journals. Uh, Most of that research is is based on the false, sort of a false foundation. Because it's based on assumptions we make about children in our own culture. That is, it is culture bound. By definition, is ethnocentric. And our children make really, really bad subjects, actually, for uh, research about children in the broad sense. Because there we our our approach to raising them the way that they view them is so atypical. So so part of what I was trying to do was to offer. Um, to to prevailing views. And there are certain areas where where the research uh, basis for research in in the West is really pretty far from what we now understand is much more typical ways of looking at children elsewhere. The pragmatic side of it has to do with contemporary uh, child rearing so i don 't address that issue so much in the book, actually, um, because my main goal with the book is really to set down uh, a theory of childhood based not in, not primarily in psychology but in anthropology so it 's an academic book, but the pragmatic part of it arises because i've started to i 've started to in effect take many of those ideas in the book and make, re, reshape them, if you will, into messages to parents. Um, and there, I've, I, some years ago, I started a blog on the Psychology Today website called uh, Benign Neglect. And basically, I do blog posts that take from my book, The Anthropology of Childhood, uh, some of these ideas and, and, address, and really try to answer your question, why, why should we care? Why would people in the West care? And then, even more recently, uh, I've compiled those blog posts into a book. So, this is the next book that will be coming out in June. It's called Raising Children Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. So, this is my attempt now to bat through all that uh, academic literature from anthropology and try to mine it for ideas about contemporary. Childhood.
0: So it seems like your book, in your book, you're not just putting Western ideas side by side with non-Western ideas in a neutral sort of way. It kind of sounds like you're actually saying that the way we do things in the West are atypical. That we're sort of the that we're the ones not that are not normal. Is that <laughs> is that so? And if that's the case, I'm wondering if you could even give us an example that illustrates a mm-hmm. way in which we do things very differently from the rest of the world.
1: Right. Okay. So um, just, just off the top of my head, we think that uh, corporal punishment is very, very harmful and damaging to children, uh, strict discipline. Uh, majority of the wor- world's cultures don't think that way at all. There is a significant minority who would agree with us that that see that as as harmful to children. But the vast majority, uh, if anything, is the other way around. Um, the, the the standard view of things is um, that that children, uh, for their own good, sometimes need disciplining, including corporal punishment. And that's really, in a way, that particular issue, that particular contrast is sort of a tip of the iceberg. And in that, um, in addition to things like corporal punishment, uh, most of the world thinks that children should work. They should do chores. They should help out. Uh, Most of the world thinks that children should have good manners, (laughs) should defer to adults, not interrupt conversations. So there's um, a cluster of views about children and about their resiliency, their toughness. There I wrote a paper in published in child development called Playing with Knives. And I found many, many cultures that 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 do not discourage children from playing with sharp, sharp knives, maybe even give them to them. And basically what people say when, when the anthropologist challenges them and says, isn't that dangerous? Is well, it's far more dangerous to deny them the opportunity to learn uh freely and autonomously and, and through their own self-initiative. So if you don't let them give them free reign, they're, they will be handicapped. So there are a whole variety of ways in which I think we've become overprotective of children. We overmanage – I mean, again, looking from the perspective of the anthropology of childhood. And now it's like the visitor from Mars phenomenon. So supposing I had spent all my time looking at children – in uh, other cultures around the world, or could time travel back to ancient Rome and, and so on. And then I landed in our society, contemporary America in particular. And, and, and I would become the anthropologist studying that. I would, I would have all these exclamation marks. I would say, Oh my gosh, you know, all, I mean, it would seem really, really strange to me. And uh, that's because because it, it, we use a term like overprotection, overmanagement, and so on. Essentially, we're saying, look, uh, that's not how children used to grow up, even in my own childhood. I mean, I had no trouble at all minding my own childhood. I'm 72 years old. So my childhood was drastically different in many, many ways, even though I was middle class. Uh, it was still drastically different in many, many ways from Typic, my neighborhood. The kids in my neighborhood. Now. I mean, for example, I'm sitting here in my office, looking out on a very snowy hillside, and it's a great place for sledding. Okay, and what I see happening is, I look out my office on a on a weekend. I see van after car after after pickup truck coming, bringing children and their sleds to do some sledding here where the parents are supervising. And this is a very local park. So I would guess that the majority of the parents are coming from four or five blocks away at most. The other day, I know it was a kind of a snowy day. And I noticed that the stop sign bottom of my street, two or two or three vans are sitting at the stop sign idling. And I wonder what are they doing? Well, they're there to pick up their kids getting off the school bus because their poor little darlings might might be cold and wet by the time they walk two three blocks home. And from your I tone, mean, this, it
0: sounds like you think this is kind of crazy. It's crazy.
1: It's insane. Absolutely. But yeah. if you don't, if you don't really mind, really
0: I, I want to go back to the to, to the topic of corporal punishment because not only is it a charged one, right. but I think it's a it's a good opportunity to illustrate such. See if we can understand the vast differences between cultures, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that many people heard your remarks on that and just cannot wrap their mind around any way of legitimizing something like corporal punishment. But, right. but, let, but let's try, or, or let's try to see if we can understand here. So in cultures where, and it sounds like you're saying that's most of them, in, in cultures where cor- corporal punishment against children is is legitimate and normal, why is that so? And why are they not concerned about the negative impact of corporal punishment on their children the way that Mm -hmm. we are, to the extent that we prohibit it?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let me take the second part of your question, uh, which is why aren't they concerned about the negative effects? They're not concerned because they don't believe there are any negative effects, okay? They don't. uh, Punishing children, corporal punishment of children, is observed with enormous frequency by anthropologists who are living in with these people with different cultures. Um, they see it with great frequency. What they don't see is anything that they would regard as actually damaging to the child. Children are, children bounce back very quickly. They're not really harmed physically in any evident way. They are, uh, they're, they're, uh, 10 minutes after being smacked, oh, they may be up playing again, so they bounce back. There's a great deal of resiliency. This is not, a, I'm not advocating for a return to the past in our society with respect to corporal punishment. Um, what I'm saying is that it, it, like a lot of things mm-hmm. that we are now taboo in our society, It's probably not nearly as harmful to children as we think it is, number one. Number two, when you see the corporal punishment is so universal, so widespread, you have to start thinking, well, if it's this common, maybe this is a tactic that actually works, okay? That is, it isn't people are not using it because they're mean or they don't like their children. They're using it because it it's a time saver, if you will. It's much harder as a parent, much, much more difficult. You have to invest far more time controlling children's behavior by reasoning with them, by engaging them in a conversation. It is far more difficult and challenging than just giving a kid a swat, okay, if you want them to stop doing something. And in the rest of the world, people work very, very hard. You know, in, the, in these traditional cultures, we use the term subsistence uh, uh, farming or foraging, hunting and gathering. People are working very hard. Their view of children is that that they they need to raise them in a way, they need to care for them in a way in which they are largely autonomous. They take care of themselves, and we we don't. They don't have a lot of time, and they don't think it's important to spend a lot of time carefully uh cultivating in children the ability to reason about their behavior the ability to have a conversation with the adult about the child's behavior so basically when you say well parents have to control the behavior of their children because children are not born angels and okay and how do you do that well i'm just saying uh uh, in our society, we've made it really hard for ourselves because we've said this is how you do it. And if parents fall down on the job, as they sometimes do, um, I think we should be somewhat fall down on the job and, and let's say, in anger uh, or in not in disgust or whatever, whack their kids. I think we should not necessarily treat that as a capital offense. I, but- I guess I would. But do, look upon it kindly.
0: But do anthropologists um, have ways of studying or, or empirically demonstrating that, in fact, things like corporal punishment or other such practices don't have the negative don't have negative effects on children? Is that is there a way of scientifically well, backing
1: no, that? Here's here's the kind of data if you if you're reading in this literature and and to give you some idea of what's in my book what I'm drawing on I, I have a corpus of material that i've gathered over about 15 years now um a corpus of material it's in english french german some in japanese um that that runs into 25 30000 pages of notes of material extracted from hundreds and hundreds of these accounts, many of them unpublished, doctoral dissertations, master's theses, and so on. And I've mined these. I've organized them and mined them and and gone through again and again and again. And I can tell you several things from that. First of all, frequently anthropologists note corporal punishment. Secondly, they frequently note, with some surprise, exclamation mark, that there doesn't appear to be any harm or any problem to those children. Thirdly, this is a little less frequent, only because anthropologists didn't think to ask the question, but when anthropologists talk to adults about their experiences as children and whether or not they were punished, whether they were uh, beaten on occasion, and did, what do did they think about that? Was that? Was that something that was... Cause them later harm. Universally, parents will say, "Oh no, no problem at all. Uh, that's what you're supposed to do," <laughs> and and they'll express gratitude to their parents to for keeping them on the straight and narrow path. So, to speak.
0: so one of the things that I I want to go back to is the difference between a neontocracy and a gerontocracy because it seems like that's that's the the core paradigm that might Mm -hmm. be operative and explain a lot of the differences that we see between societies can can you tell us what is a neontocracy what is a gerontocracy
1: okay all right yes good let me start with the gerontocracy because uh that's really what the book is is more about and um uh how do we get here well um let me let me start with a Concrete example uh, from from the book of how a gerontocracy plays out in terms of in in terms of how individuals when they're deceased how are they buried how are they interred? Okay, this seems a little strange to start with this, but it's so clear in these examples. Okay, uh, many societies have have in effect ideas about burial. So if if you have somebody who's who's very old and very important, um, they get a really fancy burial. They get there's a, there's a funerary ceremony. Uh, they're they're buried in a privileged location. They may have grave goods buried with them, and so on. This would be someone near the apex of the social hierarchy in that community. One level above that person, usually would be considered ancestors and ancestors often are maintained as shrines to the ancestors either people that have died and not recently but in the past and i visited some of these shrines all around the world and they're you know essentially how the shrine is organized varies but the the idea is the same that you continue to make offerings and make blessings and make requests of your long-dead ancestors, and a shrine is maintained. That's at the very apex. Next are these, as I said, very important men, women who have passed on. They're buried in the ceremony. Many, many societies then, as we drop down the age hierarchy, many, many societies do have no formal internment at all, no, no funeral at all for a child under 10. Child under ten may not even be considered fully a person yet. Comments are made will be made in terms of this hierarchy about the fact that children don't know how to do much or they can't accomplish very much. They don't they haven't married, they don't have a home, they haven't born children. These are all the things that make you an important person. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if you haven't achieved those, then you really people shouldn't. You you will not be mourned. You will not be considered uh, very much. When you get to younger children, babies and one, two, three years old, um, they may not be buried in the cemetery at all or whatever the designated burial ground is. They may not be married there at all. They may be be buried in the walls of the home, in the floor of a house, um, just very casually. And without ceremony, without grave goods, without any attention. An exception would be, let's say, in ancient Egypt or, or or ancient Rome, a very high-ranking family might have a more formal internment. But there won't be a funeral, and if the mother appears to be weeping, crying, unhappy, uh, then she will be she will be chastised by other women, her mother, her sisters, and they will tell her more or less stop this um, don't don't waste time on a child that is now gone, prepare your mind, prepare yourself to have another one. but what, so what is what, sorry what is the psychology or the logic underlying this what is the logic underlying this? or or the psychology um, what is the psych well because the the the, the idea is that This child was not yet a person that they don't, that their loss is, is not nearly as great as somebody older. You see, if it it has to do with individual worth and because a child is totally dependent on others and the child, uh, can, can really cannot make any contribution to anyone else, doesn't, doesn't really help out in any way. Um, then they don't, they're, they're worth this much less. I mean, if you look at historical records during the Middle Ages, for example, when they had something called bear guilt or blood money. So if there were, if, you know, when people were killed in a raid or in, in, in inner village fighting and so on, and one group uh, had, I mean, if you, if you were guilty of, Of killing uh, another person from another group and you wanted to expiate that and not lead to greater hostilities, you would have to pay money to the family of the person that you killed. And so there was a specific price. Higher prices for men than women. Much higher prices for mature women, childbearing age women, than for girls. And Almost nothing for babies, so it was a pittance, and so that was another way in which this hierarchy was reflected. Um, children are the bottom of the heap in a gerontocracy, and the only way they can move up the hierarchy is through good deeds, through helping out, through contributions to others, um, and and taking on greater and greater responsibility. Herding the, the flock, the, the you know herding cattle, having working in the garden, fishing, hunting, bringing food into the family. Their status will rise gradually. Now, if you go to the neontocracy, it's it's the other way around. That is, children are from birth right at the top, right at the top. We spend billions of dollars every year on extreme medical treatment for infants, preterm infants or infants that are born with difficulties. Uh, we lavish an enormous amount of, of money on there. Uh, we have an infant has their own room in the house from the get-go, whereas in the traditional village the child sleeps with its mother and sleeps with its family and, and, and really not to they an adult where they have any space really to claim as their own whereas we start out before they're even born. We allocate space. We allocate furniture. We allocate uh, special foods. We 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 have we, we have there are toys. Um, the uh, we may re-engineer our house and make it childproof. Um, so the, the the list of things that we do for our children uh, either out of anxiety or out of love or out of out of, uh, of feeling that this is now what everybody does um the, the the would be so strange again to the to the folks that that anthropologists typically study they just wouldn't they wouldn't understand it it wouldn't make any sense to them
0: you know i'm um, I'm wondering about whether you've actually ever traveled to such societies and interacted with um interacted with people and and I'm wondering if you've ever shared with them how we do things and and what what they think about how we do things.
1: A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Done that. Uh, I'll give you one, one kind of shocking example <laughs> of this sort of culture clash thing. Um, when I, in, when I was working in Papua New Guinea, I, I had a, a comparative research project where I, I, I had, um, I was collecting data at multiple sites throughout the country and in, in different kinds of cultures. So Papua New Guinea is a kind of, human laboratory, because there are so many different lifestyles, different kinds of subs- subsistence systems that you find within that one country. This particular site that I've gone back to repeatedly was a small, tiny coral uh, sand key uh, at the very northern uh, border of New Guinea, out out in the ocean, so to speak. And, and um, on one occasion, I took my family there, at, and and at that time um my younger daughter was an infant she was about 5 months and my older daughter was was uh about a year 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 and a half i guess at that point in time well we get to this island and and their mother uh we 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 took us 3 hours on an outrigger canoe to get out there and uh we we get there and um as we're unloading the outrigger canoe the, we were surrounded by folks, people, uh, very excitedly. And, and the, the two girls, my two daughters were, were literally whisked away and, um, which freaked out my wife, needless to say. Um, and so for the four or five days that we were living on the sand key, um, My younger daughter was brought to her mother only when she needed to nurse. Otherwise, the children, the two kids, were completely absorbed into the village. We, for hours on end, we might not see them. And so this was this was obviously uh, what 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 the takeaway message from this instance, and which is where which is echoed throughout the literature is mothers aren't that important in the rearing of their children. That child care, child rearing is a community affair. You heard the expression, it takes a village. One manifestation of that, that saying, it, one, one way to understand that saying is that, um, is, is that, is that everybody pitches in, not everybody, but a, a, a group pitches in. There's a certain number of people. Typically, an older sister will be, will be charged with the responsibility of looking after, uh, younger siblings, often a grandmother uh spends her time caring for other children I have these wonderful pictures of of my uh, daughter Sonia who as I said was about about four or five months old and and she, she, she's sitting in the lap of this old old granny woman uh, you know who's an old crone and they're just happy as clamped i mean you'd look like uh, they belong to the same family or something and and likewise my older daughter playing with the children and being treated just like she was the younger sibling of some of the kids that were there and they looked after her and played with her and and integrated her completely into the thing and and the fact and 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 um no my, my wife just had to li- go with it, you know live with it and Figure out herself what she was going to do, and started helping out with chores and so on and so forth. So that, that's the, that's one example, but but there but I could give I could give you more examples of the sort of experience that I would have that would that would show this conflict. But also I've also talked to parents. I mean, when my first fieldwork was in Liberia and a remote village there, and I would talk to parents not not directly. I wouldn't necessarily challenge them i would just simply ask much more open-ended questions which are typical of anthropology simply saying well tell me about good kids tell me about bad kids how does a kid turn out good and how does a kid turn out bad and bear in mind when i ask a question like this i'm using the name and and i'm using terms i've spent enough time there i've eavesdropped on conversations to know that if i use the term good or bad they would know what i'm talking
0: so david how do let's stay let 's stay with Papua New Guinea. How do they conceive of the role of the father
1: Oh, very nice I'm glad you brought that up actually, the father um, is not expected to be part of the picture almost at all okay um, there are exceptions, really interesting exceptions the um, generally speaking very small Highly egalitarian forager societies, such as the pygmies in Central Africa, for example. And there are a few others scattered around, uh, particularly Africa. Very few. In those societies, because they're so highly egalitarian, uh, the fathers are involved with childcare, they join this community of caretakers I've been speaking about. That is, that is, when studies have been carefully done about who spends time caring for, for, for infants and children, um, most often it's older siblings. Second, most often it's grandparents. Most of the cultures studied by anthropologists, fathers are not involved at all. But in these foraging societies, they may be involved, but still not. They don't, they don't loom very large. They're not, they're not very important in this, in this picture. Um, actually, in many societies that go much further in terms of not just that fathers aren't involved, but where they would have some rationale in effect that, that, that in a way prohibits There various, various views that would actually prohibit a father interacting uh, with their child, um, and those prohibitions, the rationale, if you will, vary, um, for different reasons, but largely have to do with it would diminish the father's standing. It, 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 it's women's work and, and so fathers shouldn't, shouldn't be involved. So, you know, you
0: have children and I know that you teach as well, so you interact a lot with young people and, and so I'm wondering, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you, Think that there are any kind of, um, uh, problems that you see in society among, among young people, such as something like failure to thrive, um, that, that you think, well, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that some of the things that, that young people struggle with today might be attributable to the, you know, atypical way that we do things here, and if you think that there, there are things from other cultures that we should be mimicking or learning from
1: oh ab- absolutely um one of the as i mentioned before i've got this new book coming out which which uh, is a complement to the anthropology of childhood because i i in fact uh, take uh, take a, a much more um critical stance if you will uh and um without without necessarily being an advice manual what I do is I try to run through what are some of the major contrastive areas. Um, for example, uh, this, is, this is where I think we're, we're in big trouble in how we do things. Um, <clears throat> in, 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 from psychology, from developmental psychology, originally Harriet Reingold did a study, uh, looking at children in the age range of 12 to 18 months Created created a simulation of an adult trying to do something, trying to solve a problem, trying to fix something, or, or complete something, or do something. The children universally in these studies volunteer to help out, and in many cases, they actually, you know, they're actually not they're actually helpful, and they um, they've tried to sort of set up play alternatives that is try to seduce children away from being helpful to play with toys or new toys and kids are really really insistent on helping out and of course in our studies in anthropology this is one of the most common and remarkable things to see toddlers already helping out carrying little basins of water um Feeding, feeding animals, uh, bringing firewood, uh, going into the forest with their family, collecting berries when they have their own little baskets. And this is just so commonplace, absolutely the norm that children from a very, very early age pitch in, help out, um, and, and develop a real sense of, uh, altruism, pro-social behavior, um, and, and share food sharing, resource sharing, um, th- this is this is typical. This is how they're raised in our society. What's happened? I think we don't see that. We don't see that. Study after study shows that contemporary middle class children in the West um, are just they're absolute parasites in their families. They don't they don't they don't even keep their own rooms tidy and put away their own stuff, do their own laundry, and this is such a frequent complaint of parents. And I think what's happened is, is that children in our society start to volunteer. They all, they, they volunteer. They, they want to help out. But we're so afraid of them getting hurt. We're so afraid or we know or realize that allowing them to help uh, in the kitchen, for example, may be more work, <laughs> make more work for us. Uh, but the point is we we deny them opportunities to be helpful because we say, oh, you hurt yourself or you make a mess or that's mommy's job or uh, no, you do your homework. And we find all sorts of excuses why they should not help out. And then we think, okay, you're getting old enough now. You should begin to help out, say, seven, six, seven, eight years old. By which time it's too late? What happens is that, that drive to be helpful is extinguished, and instead children develop this notion that that they they are they're getting a free ride they're getting a free ride and and um, so i I think this is uh, this is to me this is one area of a really really serious concern uh, i've written a blog post talking about the phenomenon of failure to launch, and I said I think it starts in early childhood because Yet we don't let our children, when they they venture to take on responsibilities, we deny them those opportunities. And I think the problem starts there, and there are corollary issues later.
0: And staying with young people, when you teach these ideas to your students, assuming, again, that these are students raised in the Western world, how do they respond? What do they think?
1: Oh, they love it. My, my, my anthropology of childhood classes, um, um, I have a lot of fun with that. I mean, I have a lot of fun with that because, uh, students, right, there's so much, um, so much culture shock throughout the class. And, um, what I, what I do with the class is I found, I have all, I don't know, 15, mm, no, about a dozen video clips. So the videos, and I start the class off. That was one of the first things I do is I show these video clips that show, for example, uh, a a -a two-and-a-half-year-old child with a a machete chopping away at a piece of palm, the trunk of a palm, just whacking away. And in the same film, you uh, watch an even younger child, toddler, uh, walking behind this child that's chopping away, and the child is got this machete over its head. So, I mean, there's actually this moment when the tip of this machete is only inches from an even younger child. So I have films like I have films like that showing children doing chores, showing showing um, films that illustrate the gerontocracy uh, system, and, uh, and 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 so on and so forth. So I basically. Force the culture shock on them right away. And, um, and I think what ultimately one of the reasons that class is successful. And I think one of the reasons the book has been successful, read my, the anthropology of childhood has actually reached a much larger audience than I originally intended. One of the reasons it's successful is it helps people understand our culture better. So once you step outside our culture and you you look at things from the point of view of these other cultures, then you relook at our culture, I think it, there's some enlightenment. There's some aha feelings that emerge because it allows us to become less eth- ethnocentric.
0: Well, David, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I, f- I feel like I've learned so much and there's so much more to talk about um, but before we go remind us of the name of your upcoming book and do you know when we can expect it
1: yes thank you very much for asking that um it will be out in june it will be published um by cambridge university press the same press that published anthropology of childhood and it's called simply raising children colon, surprising insights from other cultures
0: I think we'll, we're all, we're all going to very much look forward to that. Again, thank you for coming on thank the show and for talking to us.
1: All right. Very okay. much. I appreciate the invitation.
0: That was my interview with David Lancy, author of the book, The Anthropology of Childhood, Cherubs, Chattel, Changelings, in its second edition, published by Cambridge University Press. This is Eugenio Duarte for new books in psychology. Don't forget to tell me what you think by going to my website, www.eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on the blog and podcast tab to find this episode and leave a comment. Until next time, have a great week.